We've come a long way since we visited our ancestors, Adam and Eve. So before we delve too far into our new era, let's pause for a moment to review. We started off 200,000 years ago, living in and identifying with our small tribal groups. If we encountered another tribe in our territory, or if we desired to oust them from their territory to gain more resources for our growing tribe, we would do battle with rocks, stone tools, and sharpened sticks. Over the next 8,000 generations or so, we've seen increasing agricultural and infrastructural technologies have allowed people to live in larger and larger governing units, villages, then towns, then states, then nation-states, to our current nations of sometimes over hundreds of millions of people. During this time, we've seen ever more lethal technology and weapons that have led us to ever more deadly wars. Throughout this entire time, the fear of outgroups has been the prime driver of human history. Recently, this driver has led us to World War II, where our technology and ingenuity led us to kill an estimated 75 million people. There was little subtlety about World War II, but we've also seen that our tendency to separate ourselves into in-groups and out-groups can be subtle. In addition to defining different governing units, be they tribes or nations, as outgroups, we've seen societies separate themselves into different social units ever since the development of agriculture. As societies developed and became more and more complex, there's always been a complex hierarchy, with some at the bottom of the social structure that were seen as highly inferior to those further up the social pyramid. Both India and Japan had their own caste of untouchables. We saw this phenomenon grow into the incredibly intricate classification system used in the Middle Ages, called the Great Chain of Being, with serfs at the bottom of the medieval order, somewhere between slaves and poor peasants. Our minds are able to compartmentalize many things. A medieval knight considered serfs to be an outgroup socially and would never consider allowing a serf to sit at the same table or enter their social circles. Yet to the knight, the serf was part of his in-group if their fiefdom was attacked and would go to battle to protect the serfs. I suppose you could call them an in-out group or even an out-in-group. At any rate, this compartmentalizing and the ability to imbue one group of people with both in-group and out-group characteristics is common to every culture. Although the great chain of being had been on the wane for a couple hundred years by the 1960s, the prejudices that Western Europeans had against their social inferiors had persisted since the pre-enlightenment great chain of being world order. We've seen the development of entrenched prejudice against blacks following the Civil War. We've also seen the slow march of history toward overcoming reactive aggression against outgroups. Occasionally, it falls on one generation to make a quantum leap of history. And so, it fell to the baby boomer generation to put a stop to the great chain of prejudice that had started with the great chain of being in the Middle Ages, ran through the Industrial Era, even into the 1960s, where so many white Americans remained convinced they were superior to other races. 
Welcome to Nero's Fiddle, episode 46, The Prodigal Generation. The 1960s were a heady time if you were young. It started with the civil rights movement. Like all great movements, many had worked for many years working towards civil rights in the North, while the counter-reconstruction was still active in the South. W.E.B. Du Bois was born in 1868 and worked all his life as an author and civil rights leader. He and other great civil rights leaders began to have an audience. But a major step forward occurred during World War II when it became obvious that black soldiers played a huge part in the war effort. This led to the first major step forward in civil rights. Executive Order 9981 was signed on July 26, 1948, committing the government to a desegregated military. I've been hard on Harry Truman, and I think my criticisms in episode 33 were justified. And yet it was Harry Truman, a Missourian no less, that signed the order desegregating the military. By the time my father served in the Korean War in 1950, he was serving alongside black servicemen. In 1954, the Supreme Court ruled unanimously in Brown v. Board of Education that segregation in public schools is unconstitutional. In 1955, Rosa Parks was arrested after refusing to give up her seat in the front of the bus in Montgomery, Alabama, and the Montgomery bus boycott was launched, which forced the city of Montgomery to desegregate its bus system a year later. In 1957, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference was formed, basing its principles on nonviolence and civil disobedience. In 1960, four black college students refused to leave when asked to leave the segregated Woolworth lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina. This triggered similar sit-ins throughout the South. Six months later, the four were served lunch at the Woolworth's lunch counter. In 1961, Freedom Riders began taking bus trips from the Northeast to Southern states to protest segregation. During this time, Protests continued spreading throughout the U.S., getting larger and better organized. In 1963, perhaps 200,000 people filled the Washington Mall and heard Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. This is a sadly far too brief summary of the Civil Rights Movement. Finally, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 legally ended segregation, and then in 1965, the Voting Rights Act was passed. These acts prohibited discrimination in public places, provided for nationwide school desegregation, prohibited discrimination in the workplace, and assured African Americans the right to vote. Separate but equal was over. This, of course, is a far cry from saying discrimination was over. As black friends have indicated to me many times, their skin still brands them as inferior in the eyes of far too many white Americans. This remains a national disgrace which, along with global warming and the federal deficit, should be one of America's top priorities. But our purpose right now is to analyze the effect of the Civil Rights Act. 
I have occasionally heard black commentators say that we still live in Jim Crow America. Though I understand their point, I've only heard this point made from those who were not at least teenagers when the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed. The discrimination shown against blacks today is horrible, but it pales in comparison to what took place every day before the Civil Rights Movement. The change in attitude that occurred during the Civil Rights era was monumental, and the overwhelming part of the credit goes to the black community. Yet many white baby boomers joined in as freedom riders and in numerous marches and sit-ins as well. Following the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Civil Rights Movement obviously continued to move on, but another issue began to energize the boomers. Vietnam had historically been a French colony. After World War II, when the old imperial countries were all shedding their colonies, the French agreed to return Vietnam to local sovereignty after the siege of Dien Bien Phu in 1954. This left the North in the hands of Ho Chi Minh and the South in the hands of an inept and corrupt president. Ho Chi Minh then began an insurgency in the South. The U.S., in the midst of its Cold War fever, decided that communism in Southeast Asia had to be stopped at all costs and became ever more enmeshed in Vietnam's civil war. Then U.S. spy ships were shelled by North Vietnamese gunboats in the Gulf of Tonkin off Vietnam under highly questionable circumstances. It has been argued that the ships had provoked an attack in order to create a pretext for war. At any rate, Congress then passed the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which stated that Congress approves and supports the determination of the President as Commander-in-Chief to take all necessary measures to repeal any armed attack against the forces of the United States and to prevent further aggression. Congress was never to declare war in Vietnam, as was also true in Korea, the Gulf War, Afghanistan, and the Iraq War. The entire war in Vietnam was authorized by this one resolution. President Kennedy had sent about 16,000 troops to Vietnam. This number quickly escalated under President Johnson. By the end of 1964, there were 24,000 troops in Vietnam. By 1965, 184,000. The numbers would keep escalating. In 1968, there would be over 500,000. The need for troops was so strong and the war was so unpopular that sufficient numbers of young men wouldn't enlist in the army and a military draft was instituted in 1969. Boomers began protesting the war early. In 1965, the Students for a Democratic Society held a protest rally in Washington, D.C. that drew somewhere between 15,000 and 25,000 protesters. By 1967, 100,000 anti-war protesters gathered to protest at the Lincoln Memorial. In 1969, a protest brought an estimated 500,000 protesters to Washington, D.C., in the largest anti-war protest in history. During this whole time, protests had been happening on college campuses and in cities across America. The war began in a Cold War environment in which some people were building bomb shelters in their backyards, so they had a place to go when Russia launched its nuclear missiles at the U.S., and we trained our schoolchildren to, quote, duck and cover 
that is, hide under their desks in the event of a nuclear attack. The Vietnam War was sold by the government as necessary to keep the evil of communism from taking over all of Southeast Asia. Gradually, as college students and young people began to protest, this sentiment began to change. All along we had been told that the U.S. was the world's foremost superpower, and Vietnam was a weak third-world nation. If we just increased the number of troops to a critical mass, we would surely win very soon. The number of troops kept increasing, however, and the number of dead servicemen kept piling up. In 1968, the North Vietnamese launched coordinated attacks against more than 100,000 towns and cities in South Vietnam on the Vietnam New Year, Tet. The Tet Offensive took U.S. troops by surprise, and there was a major pullback by the Army. U.S. troops ultimately took back all or most of the territory lost in the initial offensive, but it took nine months. The Tet Offensive gave the lie to the government's continual promises that we were winning the war and victory was just around the corner if we just held on. Following the Tet Offensive, CBS News anchor Walter Cronkite, who had been no anti-war news anchorman, traveled to Vietnam to report from there. In February 1968, upon returning to the U.S., he announced that he was convinced that the U.S. was mired in a stalemate. Public opinion now turned against the war. It would take five more years, but on March 29, 1973, the last U.S. combat troops left Vietnam. These were heady times to be young. Young baby boomers had started what I would argue are two of the largest social movements in American history outside the Civil War and ended both overt racial segregation and the Vietnam War. This was a generation that was out to change things and knew that they had the power to do it. Segregation and the war were not the only things that they were out to change. As the power inherent to making major social change filled our heads, we decided that the hypocrisy we saw inherent in our parents' morals were not for us. They said we were all equal, but in an era of segregation and Jim Crow, we saw only hypocrisy. They said we couldn't have sex before marriage, but we saw politicians like John F. Kennedy cheating on their wives. They said we couldn't do drugs, but we saw them drinking every night. Millions of boomers watched their mothers take Valium, a tranquilizer, that the Rolling Stones immortalized in their song, Mother's Little Helper. They said we should believe in Jesus, but we saw them as greedy capitalists, not giving to our nation's poor. They said all men are created equal, and we saw a gender disenfranchised. We thought the word men should include all people. They said they cared about us, but we saw them shipping thousands of young men to be killed in a war we didn't believe in. Like all social revolutionaries, the boomers were good at seeing the faults of their parents' generation. This is necessary for a generation that's going to upset social orders that have been entrenched for hundreds of years some of them since the founding of Jericho. Sadly, many boomers were not so good at seeing or appreciating the strengths of our parents. Values like self-sacrifice and financial stewardship 
values that had been American values since 1776, were not to be part of the boomers' new social order. Breaking down an old and misguided social order is one thing. It's no small thing. And boomers accomplished much when they helped overcome the Jim Crow era and the Vietnam War. But breaking down a social order is one thing. Creating a new one is something else altogether. To do so, exceptional leaders are necessary to bring about the new order. When our country established a new democratic government, we were lucky to have truly extraordinary minds who were able to create such a government, when no such large democratic government had existed for over a thousand years. Who would the leaders of this new social order be? For the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King Jr. is the standard answer. And he was there from the creation of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in 1957. But not to recognize other great leaders does the movement a great disservice. There are great authors and poets, James Baldwin, Richard Wright, Langston Hughes, and many others. There were innumerable brave young people whose names never became household words, such as the four young students who engaged in the sit-in at Woolworth's lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina. In addition, there were leaders like Rosa Parks, Malcolm X, James Farmer, Fannie Lou Hamer, and so many others. These leaders, overwhelmingly, but not universally, chose and preached a path of nonviolence and civil disobedience. The civil rights movement was blessed with outstanding leaders who showed a path of nonviolence and never backing down. Then there were the rest of us boomers. Every generation is not blessed with great leaders. Our revolutionary forefathers were great leaders. The Civil War generation had Abraham Lincoln and other great leaders. The early suffrage movement had Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. The boomers had Timothy Leary, a Harvard professor who quit his job after taking LSD and told us all to turn on, tune in, and drop out. That is, drop out of school and take LSD. Honestly, we didn't have any great thinkers to lead us. I was born in 1957, toward the tail end of the baby boomer generation. So I watched the hippies as a child and saw their slogans, Make love, not war. Flower power. Don't trust anyone over 30. What if they had a war and nobody came? Black is beautiful. Keep on trucking. And give peace a chance. By the time I was in my high school years and college, the rock and roll era had turned into rock. The disco era was on the horizon and would soon be in full swing. By then, the slogans of the 1960s had coalesced into one oft-repeated phrase, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. This is no surprise. People have always needed some kind of conceptual framework through which to view the world. For most of recorded history, the Axial Age provided people with most of the religions through which people would understand their world. In the West, that would be Christianity through its various permutations. When we got to the Second Axis, or the Enlightenment, we saw Europe move past its attachment to seeing the world through a religious lens and create a new philosophical framework through which to see the world. It took many years and many great philosophers to create this philosophical framework. 
And this new access energized all of Europe and the North American colonies as we entered the Industrial Revolution. Some mix of this Enlightenment philosophy slash Christian framework has provided us with our worldview ever since, that is, until the 1960s. In the 1960s, the countercultural revolution swept away what the boomers saw as the hypocrisy of the parents' generation as well as their moral framework, but it didn't have thinkers to provide a new framework to replace it with. So what did we replace it with? Other than sex, drugs, and rock and roll, we had one motivating belief at the time, a belief that inspired something close to a unanimous following. Freedom. Or, in our terms, the freedom to do your own thing. Okay. What else? That's about it. We'd overthrown the morality and philosophies of our parents' generation. But we boomers never had a great thinker to provide us with a framework that made sense to us through which to view our world. What do people who don't have a philosophical and moral worldview do? Pretty much what we boomers did. What great ideas did we have? What new thinker came to provide them a new conceptual framework through which to view their world? The answer came in 1979. By then, the hippies of the 1960s had married, bought houses, and started families. They found what generations of Americans had known before them. Paying a mortgage and making ends meet with a young family was hard. Sometimes it could be very hard. By then, the flower power of their youth was so much youthful idealism, and it certainly didn't pay the mortgages. In the presidential race of 1979, then, Ronald Reagan told the boomers that he would pay off the federal deficit and make their lives easier in one fell swoop by cutting their taxes. If we could just cut taxes, the economy would expand, would bring in more money through taxes, because there would be more people working and earning more money and paying more taxes, even though it was at a lower rate. We were a generation that had always accepted simple answers. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Freedom. Everyone should be free to do whatever their gig was. So, we bought it. Okay, certainly not all of us. But enough of us to elect Reagan. Boomers had not grown up thinking critically about complex worldviews. So, though it may seem absurd to us today, making everybody richer and the government more solvent by cutting everybody's taxes made sense to huge numbers of boomers faced with the harsh economic realities of young adulthood. This sounds like a complete about-face from their 1960s all-you-need-is-love philosophy. But really, it made sense. In the 1960s, boomers believed in free love and drugs because it was what they wanted to do then. They had no deep moral beliefs that led them down another path. Their belief was in individual freedom and the independence to do what they wanted. What was in the best interests of young families struggling to make ends meet? Not paying so much taxes. Boomers flocked to the Reagan Revolution in surprising numbers from the beginning. We usually think of young voters as being more reliable Democratic voters. Not so with Reagan. In 1980, the oldest boomers were 36 years old. 
voters under 36 were almost evenly split between the two presidential candidates. Those over 30 began to break significantly toward Ronald Reagan. Many boomers also voted for McCain over Obama by fairly significant margins in 2008, for Romney over Obama in 2012, and for Donald Trump by quite significant margins in 2016. So earlier generations looked up to thinkers like Jesus of Nazareth, Condorcet, Voltaire, and Kant as those who led their way to their Western moral framework. But the boomers deconstructed all that. So who did they look to for their moral framework? Remember that this generation's prime value during their formative years was freedom. For the boomers, this meant the freedom to have sexual relationships outside the marital bond as their parents had instructed them not to do, to experiment with drugs as they wished. Turns out that drug thing was a mistake, but they wanted the freedom to make their own mistakes. So who are their guides? Who are the thinkers that gave them a moral compass? Turns out Timothy Leary wasn't such a great leader, and they didn't have anyone else, except those who fed into their self-serving beliefs of individual freedom. Into this intellectual vacuum stepped Ronald Reagan who became president in 1980. What did he tell the boomers? That they could keep more of their money so that they could pay off all their bills, their mortgage, and perhaps go on that vacation they'd been wanting. This fit in perfectly with their concept of freedom that they'd grown up with and which had served as their moral compass. We should all be free to do whatever we want as long as we don't hurt anyone else. Of course they were going to hurt someone else. There's no way cutting taxes without also cutting government spending was not going to hurt future generations. But hey, everyone was drinking the Kool-Aid, so why not? Decades of analysts have wondered why so many Democrats voted for Reagan, the so-called Reagan Democrats. The answer is actually simple. These were previous flower power children who grew up believing in freedom but the freedom they now wanted was the freedom not to have to pay such high taxes along with their mortgages. Okay, so they had someone to follow. But after two terms in office, Reagan was out. Now who? Rush Limbaugh came on the air with his nationwide radio broadcast in 1988. To many of us, his popularity was surprising. But let's look at some of his more famous teachings. We should definitely call those with whom we disagree names. The cuter and more outrageous, the better. Let's start with calling feminists feminazis. And with regard to women in general, it's good to be at least a little misogynist, saying women should not be allowed on juries where the accused is a stud. Women still live longer because their lives are easier. And calling a college co-ed who testified about birth control before Congress, a slut. And the list goes on and on. Those of us who thought Rush Limbaugh took the traditional American moral compass to new depths were about to get a surprise in 1996 when owner Rupert Murdoch and chairman and CEO brought Fox News on the air. But the move to the far right wasn't a sudden shift. It was a journey, as these things are. In 2007, Newt Gingrich filmed a public service commercial with Nancy Pelosi, 
with Gingrich, saying, We do agree that our country must take action to address climate change. In 2011, Rupert Murdoch, owner of Fox News, announced that he had made huge infrastructural changes and that his entire media empire was carbon neutral. At that time, he was far ahead of many other large corporations in the fight to halt climate change. As far back as 2007 then, there was little question. Climate change was real. Both Democrats and many Republicans were working together to address this issue. Back then, Republicans were talking about market-driven incentives to reduce carbon emissions. But Gingrich was a politician, and he wanted votes. So he changed his mind when the political winds shifted on this issue. He said that his erstwhile support to reduce the emissions had been a big mistake, and Murdoch was a businessman. He could see the conservative zeitgeist was becoming anti-climate change. So he filled his airwaves, the pipeline, to more conservative ears than any other outlet on the planet, with climate denialism. He went from being a leader in lowering carbon emissions to perhaps the one person on the planet most responsible for spreading the lie of climate denialism. Ultimately, all of this anti-climate, anti-liberal, do-your-own-thing, individual freedom advocacy by Limbaugh, Fox, and others would lead us to Donald Trump. Let's review a few of his more memorable actions. He bragged about walking around backstage at the Miss Universe pageant, a pageant that he owns, where there were no modesty barriers while contestants were changing their clothes and were in various states of undress. As the young women there had spent their entire lives trying to get into this competition, they had no choice but to disrobe in front of him due to the time pressure they had to get back on stage. He also bragged about being able to grab women's privates just because he was a star. He was a lead voice in the Obama birther movement, even after Obama produced his birth certificate. He claimed that Mexican immigrants were rapists and insulted war hero John McCain because he was shot down behind enemy lines. After Republican debate moderator Megyn Kelly asked him questions he didn't like, he claimed she had blood coming out of her wherever, and he disparaged the parents of an American Muslim soldier who had been killed in action. This obviously is only a very brief list, a full list of Donald Trump's sexist, misogynist, and racist statements and actions would take up far more time than we have. A public figure who had engaged in such conduct would have been considered laughable to the parents of the baby boomers. But the mores their parents once had had been rejected decisively by the boomers. And this is the kind of leader that a generation chooses when they've rejected the moral norms of a previous generation and have nothing to replace them with, other than we should all be free to do whatever we want as long as we don't hurt anybody. Once again, Trump was promising a tax cut that would make them richer. For whatever reason, the fact that the lion's share of his tax cut went to the rich, not the middle class, seems to have fallen below his base's radar. Boomers voted for Trump by large margins on his promise, among others, to give them tax cuts. 
They knew when they voted how large our deficit was. Both Reagan and Bush Jr. had conclusively proven, if there had ever been any real doubt, that lower taxes mean higher federal deficits. Even when Trump's tax cuts gave us trillion-dollar deficits, their support for him didn't flag at all. Then there is the issue of climate change. We've known for decades now what's coming. This past decade is the decade that we needed to mobilize to reduce the impact of global warming. Instead of reducing our carbon output, however, we've been increasing it. By now, we all well know the impact this will have on our children and our children's children. Still, under Trump, we continue to increase our carbon output and promote things like coal power. No generation in the history of mankind that I can think of has purposely endangered their children's futures like that. But then, every generation before us grew up with a well-established moral framework. compared historical epochs to stages of growing up, pre-agricultural and early agricultural societies as childish, medieval Europe as adolescent, but now, with baby boomers our dominant social group, we've taken a step back down the ladder of social advancement. What has characterized our climb up this ladder? It's been our ability to use our intellect to evaluate data about our world and respond in a non-emotional manner. It's the one role you note in reading about different historical epics. The further back you go, the more emotional people are when they face and evaluate threats, both individually and as nations, cities, city-states, tribes, etc. Yet, we are in the 21st century, and in one generation, have taken a giant step backward down this ladder of social evolution, from young adult to adolescent, if not even further, where perhaps a majority of our dominant generation, that is, the generation with the most political power, evaluates their political decisions emotionally, not rationally. I've been hard on the far right, and justifiably so, as they evidence this phenomenon most clearly. Yet I would be remiss if I didn't point out that the far left has joined the same movement. That's right. I strongly advocate turning off Fox News particularly Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson, and finding other, more mainstream news sources. Yet, I just as strongly urge you to turn off MSNBC, especially Rachel Maddow. Why? All three of these personalities have built up followings based on vilifying a set of Americans, either liberals or neoconservatives, and priming their audience to believe that the biggest danger to our country right now is their chosen outgroup. In other words, you should just buy their arguments that Americans are your outgroup. We're all Americans. That should mean that we're all in the same in-group. You can't convince a mass audience that your fellow country folk, that is, the men and women, who struggle along with you every day to try and make your country a better place, are your outgroup by using a reason-based argument. It just doesn't make any sense. The only way you can do this is to make emotional arguments, 
to prime your audience to fear and even hate your chosen outgroup, and to appeal to those emotions. This is how you gain a huge nationwide audience. Don't believe me? Go online and watch any episode of Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson on Fox, or Rachel Maddow on MSNBC. As they make their points, ask yourself, with each argument they make, are they appealing to my rational mind, or are their arguments emotionally based? How much of what they say is calculated to elicit an emotional reaction of anger, fear, or disdain of their respective outgroups, either liberals or neoconservatives, from an audience pre-primed to feel these emotions toward these outgroups? We boomers rejected the hypocrisy of our parents' beliefs in the greatness of Jim Crow America, where separate was anything but equal. In doing this, we rejected not only their racism, but their entire belief system. Yet we had no great thinkers to follow, so we replaced our parents' second-axis belief system with a general belief in do-your-own-thing individual freedom. When we were young adults, we had turned from the flower-power idealism of our youth. Reagan taught us that we could pay less taxes and balance our federal deficit. Rush Limbaugh taught us that once the Soviet Union fell, it was our fellow Americans that were now our outgroup. Then came Fox News, who found a very large swath of an entire generation had been taught not to analyze news critically as their parents had done, but to simply react emotionally when the news was presented as a prepackaged condemnation of a reviled outgroup all the while feeding their belief that the greatness of America lies in its creed of freedom to allow an individual to do whatever he or she wants. This freedom theme from Fox has now been taken to new heights that seem ludicrous to one who might not have bought into it. I recently viewed a video posted of a Tucker Carlson screed against those governors or administrators who would require people to wear masks. This, during yet another surge of the coronavirus in our country. This time, caused by the more contagious Delta variant. At a time when COVID is once again killing large number of Americans, pushing the idea that somehow the freedom to wear or not wear a mask is more important than saving other Americans' lives, and finally stopping this pandemic, seems odd. Yet I guess that's where you end up when your belief is in individual liberty above everything else. Fox is able to do this because gone is the moral framework that built up since the second axis, that we are all in this for the greater good. Instead, government exists to allow us to do whatever we want. One question future historians will be looking back on at this moment in history is to what degree Kant's categorical imperative has been replaced with outright selfishness. We can no longer afford our boomers' do-your-own-thing concept of freedom. We need to find a moral framework which recognizes that we live in a system. If the rules of a national system encourage people to act primarily in their self-interest, the January 6, 2001 insurrection in our nation's capital, and worse, is the natural result 
of such a system breaking down in the end dynasty stage. If we can develop a moral framework where our belief is that we, individually, should enhance and improve our social system, that we should ask not what our country can do for us, but what we can do for our country, we'll find that we have a country that works, that we, at last, can truly make the sacrifices we need to fight climate change, and that we have a national happiness index similar to the Nordic countries, and that Americans are not the enemy. No reading this week. Instead, watch clips of Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, and Rachel Maddow on the internet. Note how many of their points are aimed at firing their audience's pre-primed proclivity to respond with an emotional response of fear, hate, or disdain of their chosen outgroups. Perhaps you'll decide, I like that. I want to listen to that every night. Or perhaps you'll think, no, I want to be better than that. We can be better than that. If you're not of the baby boomer generation, I have great faith in your decision. But more on that in another episode. Enjoy. See you next week.